Is it just me or does it feel like we've been social distancing for a long time? When my daughter Naomi was first born, I used to think of her age first in terms of the number of days since she had been born. Then, as time passed, I started thinking of it in terms of weeks, and then months, and then only then years. I kind of feel like that with social distancing. It's been so long that I can't count the days or weeks anymore. I just know that it's been months since we've seen you all, and we miss you. But while we're not meeting here in this sanctuary as a church body, I want you to know that despite COVID-19, the elders have continued to meet over Zoom meetings, of course. We do this because we have elder business that needs to be conducted. But we also meet in order to pray for you and your families. We've been asking that God would protect your physical, emotional, and spiritual health during this time. We've also been praying for your jobs and your finances, and we've been asking that God might use this time to continue His good work in you in new and surprising ways. As elders, we're so proud of all of you. This crisis is really bringing out the best in God's church in so many new ways. We're serving each other in new ways. We're relating and engaging with each other in new ways. We're even learning how to study God's word in new ways together. It's been so encouraging to see so many of you participating in the U Version Bible app reading plans that we've been doing as a church body, and we're just so excited to see you there. And the elders also want to take this time to really thank Tim for his leadership and his steady hand during this crisis. He and his team have migrated to church online so well. It hasn't been easy, and it's happened really fast, and it's required a lot of work. But Tim has done this just like everything else he does with excellence. He hasn't—he isn't content just throwing a video up online and calling that church. He's really thoughtfully considered how to do this well, so that we can continue to grow in our faith and even maintain relationship as best we can, sometimes in new ways. We're grateful for his efforts, as well as the efforts of the rest of the staff as well. The way they're ministering to our youth and our children, hosting Zoom meetings for Bible studies, uploading notes and hosting online chats for our Sunday worship time—it's just an enormous testimony to our entire staff, and we're so grateful. So, from the elders as well as the whole congregation, thank you to Tim and the whole staff. And speaking of the congregation, what can we say? You guys have just been amazing during this time as well. Our ambassadors, the way you have bravely pulled together, supported each other, called each other, shared books and groceries and encouragement—it's really inspiring. We miss all the city team guys getting to see you each each Sunday. We miss our uh, middle school and high school kids that bring so much energy to our campus. The first impressions team that always greet us with a great smile on the patio, and of course, everybody that serves in the coffee shop. We miss all of you, and we can't wait to see you. Hopefully, very soon. But as Tim said in week one of Shelter in Place, church is not just four walls and a roof. You are the church, and we want to say thank you for being the church. You're doing such a great job, and we want to encourage you to keep up this great work. Because your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers, they need to see your light shining in this crisis. People everywhere are looking up and asking questions like never before, and we want you to be that light for them in this time. Well, my name is Richard Rock, and I serve as one of the elders here at Central Christian Church. And if you're new with us here online this morning, welcome. We're really glad that you've chosen to join us, and we hope that sometime soon we'll be able to meet you in person. 
And if you've been joining us online for the last few weeks, then you know that we've been studying the final words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Jesus' last day was truly awful, but we believe that we can learn how to better handle our bad days by studying Jesus' worst day. And today we're going to look specifically in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, where Jesus asks the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This question seems particularly relevant in the middle of COVID-19 because many of the questions that people today are asking also begin with why. Today I hope that you will leave from the sermon strengthened in your faith that God is in control, comforted that he is guiding your circumstances, and reminded of the truth that wherever you go, God is right there beside you. But before we get started, let's ask God that he might bless this time of study. Father God, you promise that where two or more are gathered together in your name, that you'll be there. Well, this morning we're not all gathered together in person, but we are gathered together in spirit, and we're most certainly gathered together in your mighty name. So God, we ask that you would show up in the living rooms, the kitchens, the bedrooms, wherever people are gathering this morning, whether they are alone or with others, and that you would make your presence known. Lord, would you make us teachable? Would you remove any distractions that might get in the way of us learning from you this morning? Sweep away our fears and our doubt, worry, anxiety, and depression. Lord, would you give us instead your perfect peace and your comfort? Lord, we need you in these uncertain times. We want to know you better, and we want to know what your will is for us. We love you, and we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, Matthew chapter 27 details many of the events related to Jesus' execution. And you really can't read this chapter without recognizing that this was not just another bad day for Jesus. This was literally the worst day in the history of the world. It was the day that every sin, from the smallest white lie to the most heinous sins ever committed, every bad thing ever done, past, present, and future, would finally be made right. All of it was about to be paid for by Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it tells us that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and that the penalty that brought us peace was laid on him. This verse in Isaiah is amazing for several reasons. First, it's talking about Jesus on the cross that we're going to be reading about right here in Matthew chapter 27. But it was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And what this verse in Isaiah tells us is that because of the suffering that Jesus endured for us, we are all invited to experience a lasting peace with God. Now, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to open up to today's primary scripture, uh, which can be found in Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 45. After we read this, I want to make three quick observations, and then we're going to spend some time looking at the life of Joseph from the Old Testament before coming back to Jesus' words here in Matthew. Now, starting in verse 45, it says, From noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Now, three quick observations about these verses. First, Jesus has been on the cross for several hours. 
He is literally being tortured to death in body and soul. And as he approaches his time of death, he cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we're going to come back to this statement toward the end, but think, but look here at the scene that the Bible is describing. It is the middle of the afternoon, 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, and just before Jesus cries out, it says it's dark out, even though it's in the middle of the afternoon. This is no ordinary darkness. This is an eerie, foreboding darkness, a darkness that is fitting for the scene at hand and just as fitting for the spiritual forces of evil that were celebrating their presumed victory over God himself. This unnatural darkness, I'm sure, just added that much more to the difficulty of what Jesus was enduring. You know, like Jesus, sometimes our most anguished cries to God also come after a period of darkness. And in those moments, it's comforting to know that we can cry out to God just like Jesus did. And I also want to look at the fact here that right after Jesus cries out, we see that there are several people near him. But look at how these people that are closest to Jesus misunderstand him. They ask, what is he doing? Is he crying out to Elijah? The people that are closest to Jesus completely misunderstand what he's going through. He's crying out in pain and sorrow, and no one else gets it. They don't, they don't get it, and they don't understand who he is. How alone Jesus must have felt at that moment. And maybe you've also had moments where you felt really alone and really misunderstood. And maybe that's happened during particularly difficult times of life. A few weeks ago, Tim reminded us that in Hebrews chapter 4, we're taught that Jesus can understand us. He can relate to us because he's experienced all the same things that we've experienced, including feeling alone and misunderstood. Jesus actually lived a whole life of experiences, and many of those experiences we can read about right in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the Bible is actually full of stories of real people with real lives. And you know what? Most of those lives are pretty messy and complicated, just like ours. This is part of what I actually really love about the Bible. It's filled with the accounts of real people with real struggles. And if it's been a while since you've read your Bible, maybe you only remember some of the cute Sunday school stories from your childhood. But as an adult, you can read the Bible and see that there are actually some pretty messed up people in it, living really complicated lives. And God doesn't seem to find it necessary to try and cover up the messiness of the world in the Bible. He doesn't use sanitized stories of perfect lives to try and make his point. I think this is because he understands that that's not how life works. God knew that the only way to clean up messy lives was to send his son Jesus to die for us. And so God chooses to let all the mess of life show up and hang out right here in the Bible. This morning, I want to talk about somebody who didn't always have it very easy. I want to talk about Joseph from the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. Now, Joseph was the 11th of 12 boys born to a man named uh, Jacob. Imagine being one of the babies in a family that size. All I can say is you don't want to show up late for dinner because there won't be anything left, right? Well, these 12 sons were each destined to become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. For context, Joseph and his brothers are actually the great-grandchildren of Abraham. Abraham was called by God to be the father of the nation of Israel. 
Now, Joseph's home life is pretty complicated. It's complicated by the fact that these 12 brothers were born to the four different wives of Jacob. And these wives didn't always get along very well. Imagine that. But the brothers didn't always get along well either. And you know, sometimes Joseph made things a little harder for himself than he needed to. Sometimes he would bring bad reports to his father and tell on his brothers. And other times, he didn't show a whole lot of discretion about how he chose to bring God-given dreams that God gave him, but telling them to the rest of the family and telling them that someday they're all going to bow down to him. None of this went over very well with his brothers, as you might imagine. And actually, the brothers came to hate Joseph. And when he was 17 years old, they began to plot to kill him. But they decided, after thinking about it, that instead of killing him, they would just sell him into slavery instead. Pretty dysfunctional, huh? He was sold to slave traders who took Joseph to Egypt, where they resold him to a man named Potiphar. Now, Potiphar was the captain of the guard for the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. Joseph had a number of shortcomings, you might say, but you know, one thing you can say about Joseph is that he had been raised by Jacob and his mother to know and to love God. And despite Joseph's circumstances, he never forgot who God was. And you know what? God never abandons Joseph either. Instead, God prospers Joseph in everything he does. And Potiphar, his master, sees that Joseph is prospering in everything. And so he puts Joseph in charge of his entire house. And God blesses Potiphar's house through Joseph. But just as things are starting to look up for Joseph, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce the young man. When he refuses, she falsely accuses him of trying to attack her, and, and Joseph is imprisoned. But you know, it's pretty impressive because we never read anything about Joseph being bitter or angry at God. And as Joseph goes to prison, we see that God continues to bless Joseph in prison as well. And everything he touches there is blessed. Soon the warden notices the same thing that Potiphar noticed and puts Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners. What kind of character must Joseph have shown to twice rise from slave and prisoner to trusted administrator? God was clearly working in and through Joseph. When two prisoners in the prison with Joseph come to him with disturbing dreams, God gives Joseph understanding to interpret the dreams. And one of those two prisoners is actually restored to his trusted position as the cupbearer for the king. The grateful prisoner promises Joseph that he will ask to have Joseph released as well. But the prisoner never follows through and Joseph isn't released. Two more long years pass before the king himself actually has a disturbing dream. Finally, the king's cupbearer remembers that Joseph was able to correctly interpret his dream. And so Joseph is brought before the king and instructed to interpret the king's dream. Once again, God gives Joseph understanding of the king's dream. And Joseph is able to tell Pharaoh that his dreams are actually a warning. That after seven years of plenty, there's going to be a terrible famine in the country. So God gives Joseph a plan that he passes on to Pharaoh about how to plan and prepare the country for this event. The king is so impressed that he not only raises Joseph up to be the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, but he also puts him in charge of preparing the kingdom for the coming famine. But you know, here's the thing. Joseph is now 30 years old. He was only 17 when this, when this started. 
He has spent the last 13 years either enslaved or imprisoned. This was a long period of darkness for Joseph. How many times must he have asked the question, why? Why don't my brothers like me? Why was I sold into slavery? Why am I being tempted like this? Why am I being unjustly accused? Why am I going to prison? Why didn't he keep his promise? Why am I being hauled before the king to answer the impossible? Why me? Why now? Why, God? Have you forgotten about me? Have you forsaken me? Surely some of these questions must have been on Joseph's mind over those 13 years. But you know what? We don't read about these questions in the Bible. We read about his devotion to God, his diligent service to his master, commitment to his duties in prison, and service to his king. God was at work in the life of Joseph, and Joseph was learning to trust God. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it tells us to trust in the Lord in all your ways and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge God in all your ways, and he will make your path straight. Joseph didn't allow his questions to consume him. Instead, he trusted that God had a plan and that God would make his path straight. So here's a question. If Joseph loved and followed God so well, why did he have to endure all these years of hardship? Why didn't God rescue Joseph sooner? You know, I think this is a fair question, and I think there are a lot of ways to answer this question. For today, I just want to step back and recognize that God has a purpose and a plan for every single person he's ever created, including every person listening this morning. And just as God has a plan for your life, he had a plan and a purpose for Joseph as well. But while God had endowed Joseph with tremendous potential, Joseph wasn't ready, he wasn't fully equipped to accomplish what God had prepared and planned for him. You see, God had planned to raise Joseph up to be the second most powerful person in Egypt in order to save millions of people from starvation, including his own family. But at the beginning of this story, remember, Joseph was just a boastful, indiscreet 17-year-old whose only work experience was as a part-time ranch hand. If Joseph was going to be useful to God, he would have to be reshaped into a humble man that was reliant on God and properly trained for his coming responsibilities. Now, it surely must have been very humbling to be betrayed by your brothers, sold into slavery, imprisoned, all for 13 years. But these years of hardship, I don't think they were just about making Joseph more humble. These were also Joseph's university years. He received very practical training and experience that prepared him for his coming assignment. He learned about the Egyptian culture. He was Hebrew, after all. He learned about the laws and the customs of the country, as well as important skills of negotiation and administration. And you know what? He was going to need all of these skills if he was going to administer and guide the most powerful nation on earth through its coming famine. In addition to all this, Joseph was also building a rock-solid foundation in God. His faith was being grown. He was learning how to trust God even when things weren't going exactly like he thought they were going to. Remember that in Joseph's dreams when he was younger, he saw people bowing down to him. He never imagined that he would be bowing down to others both as a slave and a prisoner. Now, you might ask, wasn't this all a bit much? Couldn't God have found a gentler way to prepare Joseph for his coming assignment? Maybe. But I think it's fair to also point out and to remember that we don't know what was in Joseph's heart. 
But you know what? I do know my own stubborn heart. And I know how direct God has to be with me at times to get my attention. And as I read this story about Joseph, I trust that God did what he had to do to get Joseph's attention in order to save him and his entire family. But perhaps the best testimony of whether or not all of this was necessary comes directly from Joseph himself. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph is talking to his brothers, and he declares regarding all the evil things that have been done to him. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So Joseph actually sees God's good hand in all the things that he has experienced. And far from blaming God, he actually shows gratefulness and wonder at how God used all the seemingly terrible circumstances of his life for good. How does God do this? I don't know. He's God. This is what he does. And only God can do this. Only God can take terrible, messed up things and make them beautiful. I think this is what Paul means in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, when he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. When John Piper talks about this verse, he points out that this phrase, all things, is a very big phrase. But you know what? God really does use all things for my good and his glory. But I have to acknowledge that sometimes when I'm in the middle of a challenge or a struggle, it's pretty easy for me to lose sight of the, of the truth of Romans 8.28. But when I take time to look back on my life and I think about challenges that I've had in the past, it can become easier for me to see maybe how God was working in my life how he was keeping me on a good path for his good plans for my future. Now, I can't say that I've ever had it as tough as Joseph had, but I have had times when I've cried out to God and I asked, why is this happening? One of those times was shortly after I graduated from business school. I was 25 years old, living here in California, I, uh, and I had plans to move back to Idaho very shortly, where I had a job and a career all figured out. Actually, I thought I had my whole life all figured out. But what I didn't realize was that all the debt that I had accumulated during business school was getting, going to get in the way of that. When I called the hiring manager for the group that I wanted to work with, I was really shocked to find out that the salary they were offering me wasn't even going to cover my debt payments coming out of business school. I was devastated. I just I couldn't understand it. There was absolutely no way that I could make it financially. And I remember calling up my dad, literally in tears, and just saying, Dad, when do you get to start doing the things you want to do in life? It seems so unfair to me. I thought I was perfect for the job. I had been trained for the job. It was what I wanted to do. I thought this was my destiny. But it wasn't my destiny. God had different plans for me. God wanted me in California because he had a job and a wife and a family all planned out for me. And you know what? I am so glad that God didn't give me what I wanted because his plans have been so much better than I could have possibly imagined for myself. And maybe you too can think about a time in your past when you thought you knew what was best. You thought you knew what you wanted. But now with time, you can see that what God had planned for you is so much better. Or maybe right now, you're in the middle of a situation and you're still trying to figure it out. You're still wondering, God, what are you up to? I can understand and relate with that as well. 
I still struggle at times when I'm going through tough things. I don't know if it's my limited imagination or my fear or something else that makes it hard for me to trust God in those moments. I know I should trust him. He's shown himself to be trustworthy. He's been so good to me. It's an area that I really want to continue to grow in. Partly I want to grow in this because as I get older, I am increasingly convinced of the truth of Romans 8.28, that God is actually able to use all things for my good and his glory. Take right now, for example, I am certain that God is in the middle of this coronavirus. I don't know all the ways that God is using the coronavirus, but I know he's in it, and I know he's using it in big ways, and I can't wait to find out those ways. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we read that in this life, we're only going to understand and know things in part, but someday we're going to know everything fully. And I think that's going to be a really exciting day. And I think Paul understood this when he was writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, when he writes, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. I think part of the incredible experience that we're going to have when we get to heaven, what God is preparing for us in heaven, is going to be the revelation of exactly how God has used all the circumstances of our lives for his good plan. And I think at that moment, we're going to stand back in utter amazement at what God was doing. And because of this, and because Paul knows that God has power to bring these things about, I think Paul is able to proclaim in Romans chapter 8, verses 37 to 39, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, neither coronavirus nor shelter in place, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And this brings us back to the cross. In Matthew chapter 27, where Jesus is doing what was required so that we could be more than conquerors. He was enduring unimaginable anguish for us. But you know, Jesus knew that everything in the history of the universe had led up to this moment. In fact, Jesus not only knew it was leading up to this moment, but he had planned and agreed to do for us whatever was required in order that you and I might spend eternity with God. But as we read Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, we see something unusual in the way that Jesus is relating to God. When he cries out and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is unusual because throughout the rest of the gospels, we see a very personal relationship between God and Jesus. Jesus often demonstrates this closeness by referring to God as his father. But here on the cross, Jesus is not referring or appealing to God in personal terms. Instead, we see Jesus crying out to God as God turns his back on Jesus. Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus actually knows the answer to this question. He knew it had to be this way. He knew that if he didn't take the punishment for our sins, that it would have landed on us instead. Jesus understood that the punishment for for sin is separation from God, to be forsaken. God should have turned his back on me, but Jesus said, turn your back on me 
instead. And as God does turn his back on Jesus, Jesus experiences a torture far worse than any physical pain we could possibly imagine. He experiences spiritual separation from God. And in that moment, Jesus was crying out to God, not as the Son of God, but as the representative of all humankind, fully burdened by all the sins of human history. He was fully deserving of the wrath of God that sin required. And Jesus knew that while the jeering crowds, the Roman soldiers, Herod, Pilate, and everyone else actually intended the cross for evil, that God was using it for his eternal good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we can join Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, when he declares, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set us free from the law of sin and death. This is the most important news for followers of Jesus because we deserved death, but we get life instead. Paul states this a different way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11, when he writes, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Instead, we are invited to receive salvation through the work that Jesus did on the cross. And when we do this, we are promised an eternity with God in heaven. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus... This promise in verse 9 that says that we are not appointed wrath has much bigger implications than just securing our eternal salvation. It also means that you're never going to suffer wrath in this life either. We might have bad days. In fact, Jesus himself points out that we will have bad days. We should never be surprised when we suffer all kinds of trials and tribulation and persecution But what we can know is that no matter what, no matter how bad things seem, no matter what we're going through, this verse assures us that whatever we're experiencing, it is not God's wrath. Because Jesus already took all the wrath and condemnation that we deserved. There's nothing left for us. And as a result of this, we can have hope when others are hopeless. We can have joy when others are despairing. Because we know that God is, in fact, able to use all things for our good and for his glory, even in the most trying times, even when we don't like it, even when we don't understand it. And this is why Paul continues when in 1 Thessalonians 5 in, in verse 11, and he says, therefore, encourage each other and build each other up because God does have a plan and a purpose. And we as followers of Jesus need to be reminded of this. We need to encourage each other. But perhaps this morning, as you're listening to this message, you're not yet a follower of Jesus. If you want to have the peace and assurance, the confidence that comes from what Paul is writing as a follower of Jesus, I have good news for you. You can say yes to Jesus right now this morning, right where you're at. If you want to make that decision this morning, it's as simple as starting with a prayer. And I would invite you, if you wanted to, to repeat the following prayer with me if you want to get started with a relationship with Jesus. It goes something like this. Dear God, I know that my sin separates me from you, that I can't live a perfect life. But I understand that it doesn't have to be this way. I understand that even though I'm not perfect, Jesus is. You turned your back on Jesus when he was on the cross 
so that you wouldn't have to turn your back on me right now. Thank you. I don't want to be separated from you anymore. Would you forgive my sins and allow me to begin following Jesus? Would you start guiding and changing my life right now? Amen. If you prayed this prayer, congratulations. Welcome to the family. You've made a great decision, and we would love to celebrate with you. If you want to text Jesus to the text number on the screen next to me here, we would love to reach out and connect with you and send you some materials as you begin your new journey. And we would love to journey alongside you. Now, this morning, as we prepare to close, I want to point out an important difference between this morning's message and some of the other messages we've been hearing in this, in this series. The main thrust of the previous messages have really been about studying what Jesus did during his final hours on the cross so that we can draw out lessons that, can, that better equip us to handle our bad days. But today, we've looked at how Jesus willingly lived through the worst day ever, precisely so that we would never have to experience that worst day ever so that we would never have to experience God turning his back on us because Jesus had God turn his back on him so that God wouldn't ever turn his back on us. Jesus and God love you. You are a part of his plan. And someday we're all going to look back and we're going to be amazed at what God was doing. And in that moment, we will say with great excitement, you did have a plan. You did have a purpose. You were working all things for good, just like you promised. Let's pray.